A warm welcome to you all. First of all, the usual bit of housekeeping. As you arrived in Jeffrey, you'll have seen the holding slide showing the Wi-Fi login instructions. And for tweeters, the hashtag is hash IOE London, or one word. We're not expecting a fire drill, so if the alarm sounds, we'll take the doors out behind you onto Bedford Way. And those who can't use the stairs should move out to the doors on the audience's left, where a fire marshal will assist. And when you arrived, you'll have seen that we have two books for people to write their messages and tributes to Jeff in if they'd like to. And they'll be out during the reception as well. We'll be adding messages that we've received from colleagues overseas who haven't been able to join us this evening. Now, the event this evening has been warmly received by friends and colleagues from across Jeff's career, and we've been congratulated on the programme of speakers. I've not tried to write a speech. Being relatively new to the IOE, I wouldn't be able to do justice to Jeff's impact here or provide historical accuracy in a way that others would and, of course, will do later this evening. And in any case, I have just five minutes. But I do want to say a few words. This event is about recognising and celebrating the impact of one man on the IOE, on the education sector and discipline, and on the subfield of sociology of education. That man is our colleague and friend, Jeff Whitty. The size of the audience today and the diversity within it including a huge range of leading academics, policymakers, school and education sector leaders, activists, business leaders, and students, staff, and colleagues of Jeff's, past and present, is testimony to Jeff's impact on all our lives. Professor Sir Tim Brighouse recently observed to me, it's often the case that the full value of a person's contribution to society is recognised only with the benefit of hindsight, notwithstanding the honours gained during his working career. That's arguably the case with Jeff Whitty, whose writings and institutional legacy are even more influential after his official retirement than when his career was in full flow. And I heartily concur. Now, Jeff has frequently told me that being the director of the IOE is the best job in the world. I have to admit to sometimes having had my own views about that. But Jeff's passionate commitment to the IOE and to leadership of it is legendary. It's been a huge part of his life, and our present success often reflects the enormous work and foresight that Jeff brought to the role. I think it's generally felt that Jeff's time as director was instrumental in the IOE becoming a research powerhouse and experiencing a step change in its profile locally, nationally, and internationally. By the end of Jeff's tenure, the IOE accounted for around a third of all UK research funding in education, and it consistently sat within the top four universities for receipt of social science research funding. Other major milestones for the IOE during Jeff's time in office include, in 2007, the IOE gained the power to award its own degrees. In 2008, produced an outstanding performance in the RAE. 
and Jeff and Bryn Jones also secured a 999-year lease on 20 Bedford Way. Now, those sweating in the offices upstairs this afternoon may beg to differ as to whether this was a good thing, but it's absolutely secured our legacy. Jeff also built many of the pillars that underpin our substantial international reputation, including INEI, the International Network of Education Institutes, which still meets annually and which has formed the basis for many academic research and teaching collaborations with other world-leading universities. So we at the IOE owe Jeff a great debt. And I want to say just a couple of things about Jeff as a person. Jeff has a driving sense of fairness. This is, of course, captured in his work on social justice, but it also characterises his personal relationships. Earlier in my career, I myself experienced a difficult time when I was challenged. A couple of colleagues in this room were among a small group of mentors who stuck up for me and argued my case, and although I barely knew Jeff at the time, being in much less senior circles and not among his staff, I was amazed to hear that he had personally intervened on my behalf and then wrote me a moving, sympathetic note which showed concern for me and my well-being. And I've never forgotten that. And I, on my appointment to the IOE, Jeff has been unwavering in his support, providing advice, always modestly given and with disclaimers that I don't need to heed it, but the advice, of course, always valuable and judicious. He's occasionally represented me at my request, and he's turned up to attend our public events however unwell he's been. He continues in his role as Director Emeritus to be a passionate advocate for the IOE. He's always supported more junior academics, collaborating with them on research and writing projects and giving them due recognition. His recent book, Education, Research and Policy, is a good example, with co-authors Jake Anders, Annette Hayton, Sarah Tang and Emma Wisby. And the continuing relevance and power of Jeff's scholarly work is exemplified in his 1985 book, Sociology and School Knowledge, being republished by Routledge in 2017. My own son, president, presently studying sociology A-level, recognised the name Jeff Whitty when I said I was hosting tonight's event. Now, we'll hear more about these contributions today, but I just want to start by thanking you personally, Jeff, for your tremendous and lasting impact on the IOE and for your gracious and generous friendship. Thank you. Now to the programme, and the first section of the programme includes inputs from some of the many colleagues who've worked closely with Jeff over the decades. Esteemed as they are, they need little introduction, so I'll keep these brief. We have Michael Young, Professor of Sociology of Curriculum at the IOE, who himself joined the IOE in 1967. Michael was a tutor of Jeff's and published with him in the late 70s. Their intellectual conversations about knowledge and the curriculum continue to this day. Then we have Sharon Gavert, Professor of Education, King's College London, and co-director of the Centre for Pub Public Policy Research at King's. Sharon's research fields have often overlapped with those of Jeff's, and they've published highly cited works together. 
Then we have Bryn Morris, currently Registrar and Secretary at the University of Essex. Bryn was Director of Administration and Secretary at the IOE during much of Jeff's time as the IOE Director. And then we have Andrew Brown, Professor of Education and Society at the IOE, another long-standing colleague of Jeff's whose research and institutional leadership positions have again overlapped with Jeff's. Andrew will introduce the Festgriff for Jeff that he's editing to be published next year. But first of all, we'll hear briefly from Jeff about how his association with the IOE first came about. Jeff. Thanks so much for those kind words, Becky. I'm, I'm delighted to be here uh, in every sense. Um, three weeks ago, I wasn't confident of being here at all uh, and at most expected to be beamed in by Skype or something like that. Um, so I've not been asked to make a major speech, thank God. Um, I'm leaving that to others. Um, but I have been given five minutes and, as Becky says, uh, use them to address actually an issue that a number of people have raised with me, worried about my mathematical ability. As they say... Jeff, you have not had a 50-year association with the Institute of Education. How could you have done? It's only old-timers like Michael Young who've done that. <laughs> the truth, truth is, Michael worked, has worked for the IOE during that time, and I certainly haven't. But what is true is I've been associated with the IOE since this very week in July, 50 years ago, when I attended an interview for the PGC history course and I maintained contact, sometimes in employment, sometimes not, uh, ever since then. So that's why the 50 years, um, and I can assure you it does add up. Um, but um, that uh, 50 years, I attended the interview, I maintained contact, but it should never have happened. Uh, and the way it happened may lead some of you to conclude that I was not actually a fit and proper person to be director of the Institute of Education. Um, my maths is correct, but I have had a further thought that my association is in some ways more than 50 years on the basis that my father was a primary school head teacher. And I heard a lot of talk around the dinner table about this dreadful place, the Institute of Education, which was, in his quarters, was regarded as hopelessly theoretical and totally out of touch with the realities of everyday classrooms. <laughs> and actually, there's some other people uh, amongst Institute staff who tell a similar story. Um, anyway... He, um, it is the case uh, that um, I can at least uh, argue a connection of 50 years, but the actual 50 years, the 50 years this week, is when I uh, had an interview here, as, uh, as, as I said, and um, what happened was... I had applied 
to go to have my PTC in um, Manchester because my then girlfriend was in Manchester. And I got turned down, and I got turned down by every single uh, place in the country. And um, it got, got a bit embarrassing, really. Uh, and it was only because um, I was turned down in, uh, at, at that time uh, by everywhere else that I ended up here. Um, I didn't want to come here. Um, however, what was the case um, was that my father, despite his annoyance at this place, did write to Shirley Williams and say, why on earth is this person with a reasonable prospects of a good degree uh, from a, a decent university not able to train as a teacher? He said, I, as a head teacher, have enough trouble getting good teachers. Um, anyway, uh, the reason that I think there might be a problem for some of you, is I only got in here after um, someone spoke to one of the tutors here. In fact, it was my, uh, my own tutor here, Peter Lee, uh, had been a teacher at the school I had attended. And so here's me, someone who claims to have had a career fostering social justice and social mobility in education, having to report that I only got here on the basis of um, that particular um, piece of um, uh, old, old boy networking. It was boys, I'm afraid. Uh, Anyway, very briefly, because I know I can see um, that um, Becky's been very generous with me about time. When I got here, I did a bit, bit of digging uh, and found out why I had been turned down by every place in the country. And it was because I'd been active in the student movement of the mid-60s. And what they had was a reference from the senior tutor at my college uh, saying to... Uh, all the teacher training institutions that received my application, if this man is planning to be a teacher, I can only thank God that my own children are above school age. <laughs> now, some of you may agree with that. Uh, and indeed, Richard Aldrich, our official historian, chose to uh, cut it out of the official history on the grounds it might be damaging to the IOE's standing with government. But I'll have to leave you to come to the conclusions about that. But just briefly, a fascinating aspect of that is that a few years later, in 2011, um, this book was published, uh, History of St John's College, Cambridge, which, of course, goes back to the uh, 16th century. And like all academics, I was vain enough to look in the index, um, expecting to see my brother's name there, which I'm afraid it isn't there, um, uh, but found my own. And apparently, 
they were really frightened by people like me, like people like many of you, um, that we were about really to overturn the political and academic norms that existed in higher education. And um, they actually uh, had a meeting of the College Council about it. Uh, and it, but in the same year as this book was published, well, it, st talking about all this stuff and saying, interesting, one of the reasons why things were going wrong was that people like me hadn't, hadn't had a boarding school education. <laughs> We'd been sent to day grammar schools uh, and didn't understand the vigours of boarding school life, which we were supposed to be um, following. Um, so anyway, uh, if I'd known that at the time, we'd have pushed it a lot harder, I have to say. But uh, anyway, I got in here through the back door. Um, I can say on the basis of pursuit of social justice, I think, because the activities... I was excluded for were the pursuit of social justice. But some of you might like to go through the um, minutes of uh, other institutions and see what was written about you. Uh, <laughs> and um, it's quite fascinating. <laughs> but anyway, I'm here. Uh, they let me in. They let me stay in. And you let me come here this evening. Thank you so much. I have discovered that I'm the second oldest colleague here. I hope John White's here, but he came about a year before I did. Uh, anyway, um, I first met Jeff when he was doing his PGC, as we heard, in 1968-69. He was a member of my Sociology of Education group, and he stood out fairly soon uh, among the students in that group, uh, because until he'd had a bit of a political education when he was a student, um, and also uh, he was a good historian as well. And uh, he gave a very, I always remember, a very sharp summary of rejecting the argument that in fact social class had withered away in this country. Uh, I hope that uh, that was a lesson for the students as well as it was for me. Um, I, uh, I knew that uh, it was an important time for him at, at the Institute, but it wasn't until uh, he and I were speaking, uh, perhaps a couple of months ago, I think, and he told me that, in fact, he came here with a view, and he didn't mention this, uh, he came here that he thought he was going to go into politics. And, uh, but by the end of his year as a PGC, that, in fact, I and uh, Peter Lee, who's here, is Peter here? No, anyway, Peter Lee was his history tutor, but he said that, in fact, we had convinced him, and I didn't know this we had, that, in fact, maybe it was uh, he wanted to become an, an academic. So I feel that, in fact, we achieved quite a lot uh, for the Institute and for Sociology of Education. Um, it, uh, we kept in touch after 
he started secondary school teaching, and um, it was, but it was thanks to a, a chance that in fact, uh, now, um, Peter Mitchell, is Peter Mitchell here? Ah, he is, great. Anyway, Peter Mitchell was head of humanities at a very interesting comprehensive school in uh, uh, Crawley, Thomas Bennett. And uh, I got to know him because I'd taken a group of students to see what they were doing about integrated humanities. And um, he then said, uh, I'm looking for a history teacher. And I said, I I've got just the guy. And uh, then I left it at that, and as they say, the rest was history. Jeff moved to Thomas Bennett, as I knew he would, and uh, he became a part-time student here, doing the diploma and later the MA in the Sociology of Education. Um, it was a remarkable time, actually, then, I think, uh, for part-time study at the Institute. Um, many teachers came onto the diploma and the master's degrees who hadn't got degrees and who had who got very excited about the ideas and the debates that were going on in education at the time. Uh, and um, I have one particular memory of Jeff as a graduate student, and I'm sure uh, at that time, because uh, there were a very diverse group, the Sociology of Education group, on the diploma and the master's degree. And uh, Jeff had a unique ability, which I'm sure he's used in other ways later, of in fact um, taking the initiative in the seminar without actually putting out either the rest of the students or me who is a tutor. Uh, and I think that is a real quality, but I'll always remember it. Um, we collaborated in, in a number of ways uh, and publishing books, and I have a word to say about them uh, in, in, in a moment. Um, and uh, when, when, he was part, when he was studying part-time. Um, and I, th I think one of the books I'd just like to mention, because it wasn't, it's not a very significant book, but it, we were asked to review uh, a, a penguin called The Myth of Cultural Deprivation, uh, which was actually ed edited by a former student of mine as well from the Institute, Mel Kelly, who I'm afraid probably isn't here. Um, and, um, but the point I want to make about that was that, in fact, uh, we didn't write a critique of the book, but we wrote, in a sense, a critique of critiques, which were the prevailing thing in uh, sociology at the time. Because we wanted to say that really there's not much point in a radical critique unless you could actually show the implications of it in practical circumstances. And um, that, that was why we actually called the, the, the title of the review was in fact beyond critiques. But I, and I think it's worth mentioning because it significantly influenced, I, I think it shaped the kind of work that Jeff was to do uh, later. Um, he and I edited two books, uh, The Explorations of Politics and School Knowledge and Society, State and Schooling. And in a sense, that crystallized that. We not only tried to move beyond critiques, we also tried to bring together the, a theoretical basis uh, for what was happening in society with the practical implications of it for what was going on in schools and classrooms. Uh, and um, I recently, uh, I, I came across two reviews of it recently. One was a very encouraging one, which Jeff and I both know, which was by Raymond Williams in New Society. And he said, I quote, this is the most optimistic and inspiring book on education that I have read. And that was really, and then I came across another review, and the review will be nameless, but I'll leave you to make your own judgments who said, these books are strident, aggressive, and biased. 
I'll leave you to make your judgment uh, about the two reviews. Um, I just, uh, uh, Jeff was teaching at, at Bath that time after he got his degree. Uh, and so, in a sense, I'm talking about him more as a colleague than as a, than, than as a, uh, uh, a, a, a student. And uh, it was then that he produced what I think is possibly the best paper that's been written in the sociology of education um, in the last 40 years. Um, it was draw, drew on his, um, his MA dissertation, but in a sense, it went well beyond that. It was called, if those of you who haven't read it, and I do recommend it, Sociology and the Problem of Radical Educational Change. Uh, and it reflected, rather painfully for some of us, our over-ambitious aims, what we thought we might do in education. Uh, but what was good about it, and what was different from, in fact, many of the critiques of both left and right that we'd got used to, was that, in fact, it, it was written from a sympathy for the project that we were trying to achieve, but aware of its limitations. And, um, uh, and I think that, therefore, it was a rather, it was like an, an insider from a movement who, he'd, who had himself, Jeff, been involved with. It was a very different kind of critique. Um, my own feeling is that, in fact, although it's about a particular time at that time for Jeff, it, it, actually, it actually is the kind of article that will go on being read as long as there's sociology of education, as long indeed as there's education. Um, there's one experience that I'd like to mention. Uh, Very quickly, a, a Michael. Later. I've got one minute. Very quickly. One minute. Well, not really, but yes. Uh, can I, ah, thank you. Well, I'm going to have one minute, because I think it's very important, and then I will end. Um, it's very important. Jeff applied for the Karl Mannheim chair uh, to replace Basil Bernstein. He knew that I was a senior member of the Department of Sociology of Education at the time, and that, in fact, I might apply, which I did. Um, he came to visit me at my home, and, he, and, and what he said was that he thought that our close association, that, in fact, he would be willing, because of it, he would be willing to withdraw his application if he thought that I was upset about him competing with me. I said, you must go ahead anyway, but, and that's not really the point of my story. He did go ahead, and he did get it. The point of my story is that it showed an aspect of Jeff's integrity and character, which I have always remembered, and I'm sure others would have experienced before. Now, I will stop there. Uh, all I will say then with one sentence is that I think we have changed, we, we've gone on discussing the big questions about education, about knowledge and equity ever since, and often I've been challenged by him, and just as I was when he was an undergraduate student or a PGC student, Sometimes I felt I was the student and he was the student tutor. But in fact, we always resolved it, and I look forward to the challenges that I'll still get. Thank you very much. 15 minutes isn't long to capture five decades of work by one of the most prolific and influential sociologists of our generation. But I'm going to do my best. I'll begin with some reflections of Jeff as a colleague, and some of this reflects what Becky and Michael have already said. If I was forced to summarise Jeff in just a few key words, then I'd choose democratic, collaborative, generous, kind, rigorous, serious and committed. These traits are entirely consistent with the values he professes in his academic writing and ones I experienced when I first met and worked with him in 1989 as a young researcher on a project he was leading. They have remained constants ever since. In his personal interactions, 
Jeff isn't in the least concerned about hierarchies of status. This wasn't something I noticed initially, because I wasn't interested in these things either, and it didn't occur to me for a moment that I ought to act deferentially towards him. Whilst respecting him and keen to learn as much as I could from him, I took it for granted that I should treat Jeff as an equal just as he did me. It was only later on when I saw how some of my peers were treated by their project leads that I realised how lucky I had been to land a job with Jeff and others like him so early in my career. Both Jeff and Tony Edwards, the other member of our project team, involved themselves in all aspects of the project and they took it for granted that I would do the same. The project was deeply collaborative and the division of labour entirely democratic. Jeff has always worked collaboratively. Looking through his CV, I've counted approximately 60 co-authors. This means that his influence extends far beyond the direct influence his scholarship continues to have on the many thousands of scholars who make direct use of his work. Jeff has had an enormous influence on the academic style and substance of the colleagues and students with whom he has worked, and in turn on their own colleagues and students, something that I've seen continuing through the generations. What I've said so far also helps to convey something of Jeff's generosity and kindness. Through his democratic style, he has enabled numerous collaborators to develop and flourish. Jeff is generous with his time and ideas, and also generous and respectful in the way he interprets the work of others. Even in the case of those with whom he disagrees, he usually manages to identify some value in their position. This is also one key component of the rigour of his approach. Other aspects of Jeff's rigour include his critical, thorough approach to using and generating theory and interpreting data, and the carefully balanced way in which he frames his conclusions. Jeff has always been a serious and committed thinker, his socialist principles infusing everything he writes, and this careful and balanced style helps to give the arguments a force that makes his conclusions very difficult to dismiss. In the remainder of my time, I want to say something about the substance of Jeff's work, which I'll discuss chronologically under three headings. Phase one, running from the early 70s to the mid-80s, the sociology of the curriculum. Phase two, from the late 80s to early 2000s, the sociology of education policy. And phase three, from the mid-2000s to the present, the research policy relationship, inequality, and the knowledge question. So first, phase one, sociology of the curriculum. As a history undergraduate in the mid-60s, Jeff, as we've heard, was enmeshed in the radical students po student politics of the time. He's described as one of the most exciting intellectual experiences of his time at Cambridge, listening to a talk by the Marxist historian Perry Anderson, later to be published as the Components of National Culture, to the alternative university set up by the student left. This experience, combined with his later experience of studying for his PhD at the Institute under Michael and Basil Bernstein, energised him, confirming in his mind the importance of exposing the socially constructed nature of knowledge and the possibilities of creating new knowledge and new ways of teaching it. Jeff was also influenced by his involvement in a Fabian Society study group at Cambridge, whose work in the political arithmetic tradition on early leaving and wastage of talent influenced the Labour Party's advocacy of comprehensivisation. Jeff has talked of how entering into teaching in the late 60s 
First, in a traditional grammar school, reluctant to admit that it was in the process of becoming comprehensive, and subsequently in a progressive comprehensive school, he was, as he put it, fired with enthusiasm to change things. However, Jeff very quickly realised that energy and ideals alone were not sufficient to affect radical education change, and that close sociological study of the kind he had encountered at the Institute was required to help generate a more realistic picture of the possibilities and limitations of radical change. This strong belief in the indispensable role that careful sociological analysis can play in the development of successful strategies for change has underpinned his work ever since. Starting with his MA thesis, which Michael just mentioned, later published um, as Sociology and the Problem of Radical Education Change, Jeff has consistently argued that meanif meaningful change cannot occur through everyday local struggles around the school curriculum alone. Radical ed educators also need to attend to politics with a big P. Only if curriculum struggles and wider political struggles are designed to support one another will they be able to affect radical change. Given this, it isn't surprising that Jeff very quickly became frustrated with the cruder forms of Marxist analysis which deny the possibility for any kind of radical change in schools without capitalism first being overthrown. In sociology and school knowledge, Jeff describes a pendulum swing between what he called the naive possibilitarianism of the new sociology of education and the determinism of cruder forms of structural Marxism. Evident throughout his career is a determination to steer a careful course between the twin dangers of naive optimism and pessimistic determinism. Jeff wrote at the time, despite the frustrations that this alternation between extreme positions engendered, I held on to the idea that sociological study of the curriculum would yield important insights into opportunities for radical practice in and around the educational arena. One early example of this work is his historical study undertaken originally with Dennis Gleeson on the fate of several failed attempts to get social and political studies taken seriously in schools from the 1950s through to the 70s. Jeff's core argument was that social and political educators had failed to properly analyse the social and political conditions of their interventions and that these uh, interventions as a result were fundamentally flawed. One lesson Jeff took from this analysis is the importance of not drawing strategic conclusions from limited experience. Rather, he concluded, what is required are historical and comparative studies of curriculum reform movements, which in a cumulative way can contribute to the development of the sort of theory that can help us to understand the complexities of past failures and their implications for new strategies of change in a new conjuncture. Although the policy context is very different, Jeff's recommendations for progressing the social studies movement in the mid-80s are applicable to social and political education today at a time when these subjects continued to be under threat. One of Jeff's recommendations was to link a counter-hegemonic strategy for political and social education to policy pressures to develop closer links between schools and the world of work. For example, citing Rachel Sharp, he signalled the exciting curriculum possibilities thrown up by work experience in schools. The class dimensions of the workplace, its sexual and ethnic divisions, its hierarchies, the social impact of technology and the labour process itself are all easier to discuss when students have direct experience of everyday labour routines. Social and political educators would do well to follow Jeff's advice today. Indeed, I would claim to be following this advice directly myself in curriculum initiatives with which I'm engaged at King's.
Moving on to phase two, the sociology of education policy. Since the late 80s, the empirical focus of Jeff's work has shifted from the curriculum to policy studies, but a strong continuity can be seen in his concern to demonstrate why policymakers and practitioners would benefit from more sociologically informed thinking. All of this work involved a meticulous unpacking of the complexities of policy interventions. Reflecting on this work towards the end of this period, Jeff noted that it demonstrated policymakers' consistent failure to think contextually, revealing how so much education policy misrecognises the relationship between school and society. As in the previous period, the work was centrally concerned with trying to combine critical and problem-solving perspectives. During this period and since, Jeff has also continued to grapple with the challenge of avoiding the twin dangers of excessive optimism and stultifying pessimism, arguing with Gerald Grace for the potential for sociology of education to contribute to complex hope. To take an example that combines Jeff's interest in the curriculum and policy, his study of cross-curricular themes in the national curriculum carried out in the early 90s with Peter Agleton and Gabrielle Rowe uses a Bernsteinian framework to show that any attempt to teach social education simply through layering cross-curricular themes over an unreformed subject-oriented curriculum was always going to be doomed to failure. As is typical for Jeff, the analysis is accompanied by practical suggestions for how social education could be made more meaningful, bearing in mind what was possible in a contemporary conjuncture. Other examples of work during this period include studies of the assisted places scheme, city technology colleges, teacher education reform, education action zones, and school choice and devolution. The latter study, conducted with Sally Power and David Halpin, analyzed the contradictions and substantial limitations of giving individuals more choice without wider social change. Jeff used this work as a springboard to reflect on how the more positive aspects of choice and autonomy could be used to facilitate the development of new forms of community empowerment without reinforcing social inequality. Jeff's concern here was to avoid the twin traps of the exclusionary statism of the social democratic era and the stratified marketization of neoliberalism. For example, he argued for the development of a new democratic teacher professionalism which would open up deliberation and decision-making to excluded constituencies. And he sought to develop a new conception of citizen rights that would give voice to those excluded from the benefits of both social democratic and neoliberal policies and reassert collective responsibility for education without recreating the over-centralized planning characteristic of social democracy. This takes me to, finally, to phase three, the research policy relationship inequality and the knowledge question. Much of Jeff's work over the last 15 years has focused on the uses and abuses of evidence in policy making. For example, Jeff used his 2005 Beera presidential address to warn against the potentially damaging implications for the health of education research of the What Works agenda. One of Jeff's worries was that the emphasis on what works would result in a, in a neglect of the more foundational question of what matters. But he was also concerned that the What Works movement would squeeze out the diversity of disciplinary approaches that are required if we are to properly understand what works. This is because, Jeff reminds us, if we want to know what works, we need first to understand when, where, for whom, and why the things that matter work or don't work. 
These are all questions which require careful, theoretically and empirically informed critical social science research, rather than the quick fix uh, approaches espoused by think tanks, policy consultants and spin doctors, which have become so influential in shaping education policy. The pernicious influence of this quick fix logic was subsequently brilliantly explicated in Jeff's 2012 analysis of transatlantic policy tourism and his 2014 study of recent developments in teacher education. A second strand of work during this most recent period has focused on social class differences in school attainment and in access to higher education. Work that brings together critical sociology, state-of-the-art literature reviews and quantitative research within the old political arithmetic tradition of the sort that Jeff had first encountered in the Fabian study group at Cambridge. It is this research that had originally convinced him of the potential for the sociology of education to influence education policy. This strand of work, developed in collaboration, as Becky mentioned, with Jake Anders, Annette Hayton and Sarah Tang, offers incredibly valuable syntheses and interpretations of the complex evidence on the equality implications of over two decades of almost permanent education reform. Characteristically, Jeff reminds us that without a more radical politics of redistribution, only limited progress can be made in resolving inequalities of access and attainment. Equally characteristically, he also points out that this doesn't mean we should abandon the struggle for social justice in and through education, merely that we have to be realistic about what can be achieved through education initiatives alone. And he goes on to specify concrete means of addressing some of the inequalities he has identified. A third focus of work in this period is a return to what Jeff refers to as the knowledge question, explored partly in dialogue with the work of Michael Young and partly with John Furlong through a cross-national comparative analysis of education as a field of knowledge. As ever, Jeff's position is at once radical and reasonable. He reminds us that simply arguing for the value of what Young refers to as powerful knowledge for working-class children isn't sufficient. The more neglected pedagogic issue of how best to give them access to that knowledge in ways that give it meaningful and critical purchase on their everyday lives is vital. Here, Jeff returns to his Bernstinian roots for inspiration, explicating how Bernstinian insights might be used as tools for developing pedagogic strategies. This has, of course, been an extremely condensed summary of Jeff's work. However, I hope I've given an indication not just of its breadth and diversity, but also of its continuities. Indeed, I would say, I would say what is striking is the integrity of Jeff's contribution. His strong commitment to democratic education shapes his personal style, but it also runs through his analytical approach. He doesn't ask questions about what is desirable without setting them alongside questions about what is possible. And he is an advocate for the power of theory, not just as a way of standing back from immediate contingencies, but as, as a way of concretely engaging with educational change. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to start by, uh, by just um, reflecting on the fact that 13 years of guilt have just been lifted from my shoulders uh, this evening. Um, when I first started here at the, at the Institute, uh, I moved house from, uh, from Bristol 
so that I could commute into London. And, and I had to apply for my eldest daughter to get a school place um, substantially after the deadline for applications. In fact, it was actually the day before allocations were, uh, were, were being made. So I wrote this pleading letter uh, to, the, uh, to the local authority uh, explaining my circumstances. And rather cheekily, I said, um, if you need any correspondence with me on this, uh, on this application, it's probably best if you write to me at my work address at the Institute of Education, <laughs> University of London. Well, um, I'm pleased to say that notwithstanding that my application arrived on the day's, day that the allocations were made, I was successful in securing my first choice. And I came into work the next day and, uh, and said to Jeff, fantastic news, my daughter's got, uh, got, got, got into a school. And he fixed me with that, that look that he's got. And he said, do you know what? I write, write books about middle-class people like you working the system to their own advantage. And today, <laughs> Professor Whitty, I have discovered... Oh, I'm not going to go there. Anyway... Um, I had the good fortune uh, to work with Jeff from February 2005 when he took a punt on someone with no experience of working in higher education. Uh, I've got very many vivid memories of that period, too many to share with you today, so I've chosen just three. For the first, I'd like to take you back to the evening of Thursday the 29th of November 2007. Now, this auspicious day saw the alignment of two important events. The Times Higher Education Awards at the Grosvenor House Hotel and the uploading of the Institute's 2008 RAE submission. For some reason, I was the man with the codes to upload the documents. Uh, the, um, unfortunately, uh, due to some just-in-time edits to the RA5 document, uh, the submission had to be delayed and the time of the drinks reception at the Grosvenor House was approaching. To ensure that I could fulfil my RAE duty and still make the awards, I got changed into my tuxedo before making my way down to the RAE base room to check on progress. All the hard work had been completed and the submission was ready to go. To mark the occasion, a bottle of champagne was opened and so, in full dinner suit and with champagne flute in hand, uh, I... I uh, completed the task of submitting the Institute's RAE submission. I'm convinced that my sartorial elegance <laughs> contributed to the stellar success of that RAE result. The second memory I'd like to share is from 2009. Uh, we had decided to try and join the then 1994 group of smaller research-intensive universities. I'd been asked to write the document making our pitch. It was 5pm when I sat down to start work on the draft at my desk upstairs. It was actually a rare treat to be able to focus on one task from the beginning right through to the end. Before I knew it, it was 2am and I was starting work on the appendices. And by 3am, the job was complete. Those colleagues who subsequently had to experience attending 1994 group meetings once our application had been accepted may not have thanked me for my persuasive drafting but the objective was achieved. My final story stems from 2010 and relates to the negotiations with the University of London about the Institute's occupancy of Bedford Way that Becky's referred to. Um, since construction, this, uh, our occupation had been on a relatively informal basis. Uh, 
under the oversight of the University of London Estates Committee. Now, at that time, the long-serving Vice-Chancellor of the University of London, Sir Graham Davis, was seeking to reform the university's governance arrangements, a task he was determined to complete before his retirement. That created an opportunity that Jeff and I could exploit. I developed an argument to justify the Institute's Council rejecting the proposed governance changes because to do so would reduce the security of occupation of Bedford Way. It was the fiduciary duty of our governors to object. So negotiations took place. They required my best poker face, with the consequence that a 999-year lease for the Institute on Bedford Way was secured and governance changes could be supported. Now, you may be wondering why my three stories haven't featured Jeff at all. <laughs> well, for me, he's featured in all three of them, because they speak directly to Jeff's driving ambitions as director to reassert the Institute's position as a powerhouse of social scientific research in the RAE, to establish the Institute as a respected part of the mainstream of UK and world higher education institutions, and to safeguard the sustainability of the work undertaken by staff and students at the Institute for future generations. In respect of each of these goals, Jeff was spectacularly successful. Often this was by sheer force of will, Always, it stemmed from a huge affinity with the values of the Institute and a deep-seated personal commitment to its success. I can recall being surprised when I first started working with Jeff at the extent to which his leadership style was characterised by high levels of emotion. I soon came to see how it was the emotional connection with the Institute which was at the heart of his success and quality as a leader. There are many other stories I could, could have shared with you when Jeff, Dylan William and I, over a curry at Brownlow Mews, rejected the prospect of merger with King's London because King's was the equivalent in footballing terms of West Bromwich Albion rather than firmly established in the global HE Premier League, and I apologise for any Baggies fans in the audience. Uh, when I, or when I visited Jeff at UCH when he was having some treatment a few years, uh, a few years ago and wanted to catch up on what was happening in the world. Jeff was completely oblivious to the limitations of hospital gowns in, in covering one's modesty. There are many, many other stories that I, could, uh, uh, that I could share. But I'm drawn back to the three stories with which I began. They're important to me, just not just because they reflect my own experiences. They also reflect some of the ways in which, as a colleague and as a friend, Jeff helped me achieve things with, that without his encouragement, guidance support, and I have to say, annoying insistence, I wouldn't have been able to achieve. As a consequence, I was able to make my own small and ephemeral mark on the Institute, alongside the substantial and enduring contribution that Jeff has made. And so, from a personal, as well as an institutional perspective, I've been honoured to recognise the peerless work of Jeff Whitty as Director of the Institute. Thank you. Um, over the next five minutes, please bear in mind that you don't have to be able to say Feshrift in order to edit one. Um, okay, um, that was the health and safety warning uh, kind of announcement. Um, I joined the IOE in 1987 as a temporary contract primary teacher education or teacher educator. Um, and that gives me a mere 30 years uh, of service. It makes me feel like a, 
a fly-by-night, really, um, with uh, Jeff's 50-year uh, association. I wasn't going to mention this, but it could have been 40 years association for me if I had got the place on the primary PGCE <laughs> that I applied for. And it's only now that I realise that this was a multi-stage application that involved writing to an MP in order to kind of secure your place. So thanks for that, Jeff. Actually, I now do know all the right people, so maybe I should have another go. Um, anyway, it's a great honour to be here to say just a few words um, to, to celebrate Jeff's association with the Institute. Um, I'd like to say that working with Jeff over this time had been a pleasure, but unfortunately I can't. Um, now, the reason for that is that actually I've worked with, for Jeff over these past 30 years rather than with Jeff. It's only latterly uh, that I've been able to work with Jeff. Uh, he's always been a few rungs ahead on the ladder of me. So um, that's my kind of, uh, I'm kind of you know, making that kind of contribution. Um, of course, there's a point to be made here, and that is, and it's been well made by the previous presenters, that Jeff has combined his illustrious academic career with a really, really serious academic management and leadership roles and hasn't let one interfere with the other. Well, certainly the administration hasn't interfered with the academic work. I'm not quite sure about the other way around, whether that's the case or not. Um, the, um, it's been marked, this work, by a kind of consistent and dogged um, commitment to social justice. And I think, again, that's come across in the, the, the previous uh, presentations that people have made. Um, now that I do work with Jeff, um, of course, that, and, and working for Jeff previously, um, I mean, working for Jeff has been, by and large, a, a pleasurable experience. There are kind of two exceptions that I am going to mention. Uh, Bryn didn't mention these quite diplomatically in his. Um, presentation. One is uh, Monday morning SMT meetings uh, that we used to have. And I think Jeff used to spend the weekend ruminating on the failings of the Institute um, and the threats to the Institute and who might be responsible for those. Um, and we as deans got the kind of full force of that and Bryn as the head of administration on Monday mornings. And it took us really until kind of Tuesday afternoon uh, to recover for that. Actually, it might have been better to have those on Friday afternoon, and then we wouldn't have lost any working days. Anyway, uh, not a suggestion I would have made at the time. The, uh, the other is that only a fool gives Jeff a document when he's within grasping distance of a red pen. Um, and uh, as everybody knows, and, uh, and I'm sure it's part of Bryn's story, uh, Jeff has an amazing kind of eye for detail. Uh, and doesn't really kind of uh, hold back on uh, making that scene uh, on documents. Um, as um, an academic, I think Jeff hasn't, hasn't actually uh, attempted to kind of develop a brand, to kind of actually formulate what he's doing into a kind of a position that he actually establishes in the field. Um, what he has done is to produce a succession of influential books and papers, rigorous and impactful research studies and reports, and has kind of mentored and supported colleagues in the field. And his work has had a massive influence on the development of the sociology of education, and in particular on the critical policy studies in education. So my role this evening is just to draw your attention to the Feshrift that 
Emma Wisby and I are editing in recognition of that contribution that Jeff has made to the field. Emma's involvement in this means that it will happen and it will be delivered on time. Everybody has one of these. We've divided the collection of papers and we have a fantastic kind of array of major figures in the field contributing to this. The idea is that the book is a contribution in itself. So it does celebrate Jeff's work and it does celebrate the impact that he's had on the field, but it also makes, I think, an original contribution and a valuable contribution in itself. And I think that's something that Jeff uh, would want this to do. We've divided into three sections that reflect those phases in Jeff's work from, kind of policy, from, from knowledge to policy to practice and the interrelationship between those phases. Um, you all have one of these kind of pre-publications that kind of lays out the structure of the book, who's contributing to it. Please take a look at it. Please make an advance order. I've got a, one really good piece of news, and lots of the authors for papers are here tonight. Everybody is on time and on task in delivering their papers. There is absolutely no possibility whatsoever that this will be delayed, and it will be published in February 2019, as stated. So please take a look. Please place some orders. Please support it. And it's been a real great honour for Emma and I and all the other contributors to produce this publication, which we hope fully recognises the contribution that Jeff's made. So thanks for that. Thanks to all our speakers. That's terrific recognition. Now on to our keynote this evening. Um, we're privileged to have Professor Michael Apple with us. Michael Apple is the John Bascom Professor of Curriculum and Instruction and Education Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he's taught since 1970. Before completing his EdD at Teachers College, Columbia University, he taught in elementary and secondary schools in New Jersey and served as the president of his teachers' union. In addition to more than 300 journal articles, he's authored and edited more than 40 books, including the landmark publications Ideology and Curriculum, Official Knowledge, and most recently, The Study for Democracy in Education. Michael's a very long-standing friend of Jeff's. In 1979 to 80, Jeff was a visiting professor at the School of Education, University of Wisconsin-Madison. So over to you, Michael, please. I am hoping that this is not water. <laughs> but unfortunately, it is. <laughs> Sorry. I associate all meetings at the Institute of Education with wine being served, so you'll forgive me if I pretend. When I was asked by the organizers of this event to provide a longer lecture, a longer talk by Jeff, they set a task. The task was to say something about Jeff, but not too much, because after all, so many others will be speaking about Jeff to solve all of the problems in the sociology of education and as well to point to the future of critical education. What they had forgotten to remind me to do as well was to ask why God had such a perverse sense of humor that he allowed that Donald Trump would be elected as the resident, not the president, of my own nation. 
I would much prefer to talk about Jeff and all of the problems of sociology of education than to abide one more dam's talk about the resident who lives in the White House in the United States. The sound you'll hear next is the sound of the nuclear devices coming over, but that we can put off till later. So thank you very much to remind us where to go for safety. Um, you undoubtedly know that no one from the United States can start any lecture without speaking about our beloved resident. So let me begin. I will not mention Mr. Trump's name again, ever in my entire <laughs> damn life. Let me begin by saying something personal about my relationship with Jeff. In the early 1970s, I began work on a manuscript that was be to become the original edition of Ideology and Curriculum. As I was completing one of the chapters, Common Sense Categories and Curriculum Thought, I read a number of essays that were produced in the UK on what ultimately was called the Sociology of School Knowledge. Many of the authors are in the room today. I realized clearly that there were very similar conceptual, political, and educational groundings with my own work. I sent a copy of that paper to people in England. And luckily for me, this led to increasingly close relations between me and Roger Dale, Madeleine Arnott, then MacDonald, Belsa Bernstein, Michael Young, Len Barton, Mickey David, and so many other at institutions such as the Open University, the IOE, the University of Sheffield. It ultimately led as well to substantive connections with people engaged in equally important work at the sadly closed Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies at the University of Birmingham, and later to very close connections to Stephen Ball, Deborah Udell, and David Gilborn here at the IOE. But one of the most important people who stand out here was and is Jeff Whitty. Since he helped me organize my first set of lectures in England in the mid-1970s, our friendship and the often intense discussions of the complex relations between education and the larger society that we have had over more than four decades have been something that has been truly formative in the ways I think about a considerable number of issues. This was enhanced, as Becky mentioned, by Jeff's coming to Wisconsin as a visiting professor, and again, to my benefit, my repeated times at the IOE as both a visiting professor and then world scholar. He is that rare individual who is both a close friend and someone who continues to teach me about what serious, substantive, and engaged work must be about. Indeed, let me be honest, it would not be an overstatement to say that I don't think my own work would have made the contribution that it has made without Jeff's long-term friendship, support, oh, and need I mention criticism when I've overstepped my arguments forgotten about the complexities of policies and politics as they exist on the ground, and his reminders that the UK and elsewhere are not to be seen as the playthings as the same as the arrogant person from the United States. There may be small other than linguistic differences between earlier empires and the latest pretend empire as well. Now, a key part of Jeff's commitment has always been to work at the intersections of theory, policy, and practice, and to expand the sphere of critical educational research at each of these levels, as Sharon and others have documented. It is exactly that space of critical intersections that is even more significant today. 
and in many ways his work on the politics of curriculum, on critical policy analysis, on teacher education, and so much more demonstrates the connections of the issues that are too often seen as separate, as silos in the farm of producing research. As you know, Jeff has consistently grounded his work in the belief that it is absolutely crucial to understand the social realities of schooling. What is happening today makes these analyses even more significant. As I personally have shown in debate with many people in this audience, it is not only neoliberalism and its attendant policy initiatives alone that are changing our common sense about education. It is not. Indeed, it seems to me to be a major category error to reduce our critical analyses of education to simply being a reflection of any one set of tendencies within a dominant hegemonic block. My God, have we learned, learned nothing about much of the work that has been produced by people sitting in this audience. Yet having said this, it is still all too clear that its import is nearly everywhere as an imprint on our identities and lives. Such things as audit cultures, excuse me, I must swear for a few minutes, audit cultures, performance pay, never-ending competition, privatization, attacks on teachers and teacher unions, raising standards while reducing support for state-supported schooling, a climate of simply white supremacy, raising standards while reducing support for public schools again and again and again, and I know I repeated that phrase. Uh, and anti-immigrant movements, a culturally restorative project to reinstall what is assumed to be high status knowledge in schools, and similar reforms are increasingly transforming what counts as a good school, a good teacher, a good curriculum, a good parent, a good student, a good community, literate culture, even important evidence, and so much more. Education, as we all know in our daily lives, has once again become a site of crucial struggles over authority and identity, indeed over both the very meaning of being educated and who should control it. And it has become a site of epistemological struggle over what counts as evidence to place value on these things, an epistemological war that is, you'll forgive the masculinist phrase, a war. Like many of us here today, Jeff believes very strongly that we have an ethical obligation to challenge these positions. At first, I thought about saying pollutions and defend a robust education that is based in what simply can be called human flourishing. Now, those of you who are familiar with my own work may know that I ask simple questions. Rather than simply asking whether students have mastered a particular subject matter and have done well on our all too common tests, we should ask a different set of questions. Whose knowledge is this? How did it become official? What is the relationship between this knowledge and how it is organized and taught? And who has cultural, social, and economic capital in our societies? Who benefits from these definitions of legitimate knowledge and who does not? What are the overt and hidden effects of educational reforms on real people and real communities? What can we do as critical scholars and activists to challenge existing educational and social inequalities and to create policies, curricula, and teaching that are more socially just? And has been repeated numerous times tonight, well-deserved numerous times. These questions and issues have been central to Jeff's work on the politics of school knowledge, 
In fact, he has been a chronicler of these tensions and issues in multiple books and articles. But for those of us engaged in critical social and cultural research and actions, one other question has stood behind these other issues. It is the central organizing question that gives meaning to these others. Indeed, it's the basic issue that should guide any critical education and especially critical sociology of education. It's a simple question. Can schools change society? This is the fundamental question that's guided most of my books and the work of so many people in this audience. And I, can't, I don't think we can understand much of Jeff's lifetime of work without understanding his dedication to help us understand what this means to critical educational theory, research, policy, and practice. Yet although important questions such as can schools create a new social order, a naive question in many ways, and what is their role in social change, not a naive question, in a number of ways these are simply premature. Before we can answer them, we need to fully understand, at least more fully understand, the ways in which the curricular, pedagogic, and evaluative principles and practices that go on within schools are determined. Thus speaking metaphorically, prior to asking about education's inside to outside relationship, we need to ask about the outside to inside connections, something Basil Bernstein also asked. We cannot be reductive though, either in our questions or our answers. And as Jeff constantly reminds us, we must ask, how and why is this the case? The political as well as academic implications of this are significant, since it asks us to be very cautious of easy and overly rhetorical answers. Anyone who knows Jeff, or who knows most of the people in the audience here today, also knows that we are definitely not asking for a quiescence or an action, far from it, as the strikes in this august institution and elsewhere document. And as the former president of a teacher's union, if there ain't a strike, I want to walk away, as the police have discovered, unfortunately. But we do in insist, and I think rightly so, that critical scholars and activists are mind mindful of complexity and contradiction, of hidden relations and effects. And this is crucial if we are collectively and individually to successfully challenge the neoliberal, neoconservative, authoritarian populism, and managerial agendas that are making it so very hard to defend an education worthy of its name. And of course, it shouldn't surprise anyone if I argue with Jeff that the test of whether we, the most dangerous word in the English language at times, since it's actually both a concept of inclusion and profoundly of exclusion, can create an education that acts back against dominance that has to be answered through critically reflective political and educational practice, not only theory. Now you forgive me if I turn to part of my background, a bit of philosophy. It has become something of a truism in the literature and analytic philosophy that language does and can do many things, all of them valuable. It can be used to describe, explain, control, critique, legitimate, affiliate, and God help us, thank goodness, mobilize. Yet rhetorical language is associated with legitimation, affiliation, and mobilization, but it's often a poor tool for the other tasks that language must perform. And this is an important point that bears on the 
arguments that have influenced Jeff and certainly me. All too, part, too many parts of the critical educational tradition seems to be content with often rhetorical slogans, many of them empty, rather than examining the complicated and multiple struggles and power relations that exist in the real world and the full range of possible tactics that must be employed to change them. It's as if Gramsci has never existed. And all too much of it sees its role as only deconstructive. Indeed, Jeff and I have together weighed in on these worrisome tendencies in our paper on the gains and losses of some forms of postmodern theory when it's seen as a full replacement of more structural analysis. Poverty ain't a discourse. Bodies washing on beaches in Greece. We make discourses about it, but there's a dead child's body. The children taken away from their parents by our fascist in residence whose name I promise not to say again are not discursive, they're real children. And this is a pity since this lack has a number of effects. It weakens the explanatory potential of critical analysis. It paradoxically helps those who wish to marginalize critical analyses at exactly the same time as they're even more important. And finally, as I mentioned, such rhetorical positions lack the strategic sensibility that's so crucial in what Antonio Gramsci brilliantly called the war of position that we face, a nuanced understanding of the actual possibilities of doing critical work in multiple sites and connecting those sites together. Well, this is not true of all critical traditions, of course. Some of the most interesting work in critical education within multiple traditions is much less rhetorical and it is grounded in a concrete understanding of an action with and even more importantly in and even more importantly with communities, cultural activists, practicing educators at all levels of the educational system and social mobilizations and movements. Much of the more robust and nuanced theoretical and political analyses that have emerged on the state, on the complex relationships among culture, politics, and the economy, on identity, on the ways in which educational sites and institutions can be worked on and equally important, worked with, that have been developed over the last decades of intense conceptual and political progress, have been produced by people who exemplify the role of the critical scholar activist, many of whom are my teachers and many of whom are in this room again. That's what makes this coming home. No one is alone at the Institute of Education because the tradition lives not just in Jeff, but with us. Thanks for coming home. Though I would have liked some wine instead. No, okay. Because of such efforts, there have been real successes that give me reasons for optimism. But to be honest, I worry about some of what counts as success. Let me be a little personal here. During a series of lectures and some work with critical educators in a country in Asia that will be nameless called China, I spent a good deal of I promised myself I would not do that. Uh, I spent a good deal of time with postgraduate students. Many of them had been or still were teachers in the public schools of that country. 
and we talked about many things, and I was deeply impressed with our knowledge of a large array of work in critical educational theory and research. And during our conversations, they told me that one of the reasons they were more than a little familiar with some of the core work in critical sociology of education and cultural studies, including much of my own and of much of the own people in this audience, that the major reason was because it was included on the standardized tests that teachers and graduate students had to take as an official part of their graduate programs. And I'm certain that in his repeated visits to China that Jeff has had similar experiences. This is a paradoxical situation. On the one hand, it clearly shows that what Isaac Gottesman has called the critical turn in educational research has been integrated into the formal corpus of official programs in education throughout the world. I'm certain that this was not an easy thing to do and it constitutes a victory, a victory that can be all too easily lost as we see in all too many nations, Turkey, Hungary, Poland, Myanmar, and elsewhere, right now as we sit here. On the other hand, ever the conscience of us, and as usual, raising concerns that challenge us to be honest, Jeff looked at me and asked me to be very cautious about celebrating this victory, and then repeated it. Don't be so easy to be happy, Michael. As he noted, such incorporation may also signify a process of co-optation of what he called romantic possibilitarianism, yeah? of taking, you know, as he said, this could be an instance of taking insurgent knowledge and turning it into simply one more damn academic area that needs to be studied for examinations, thereby severing its connections to its political roots. Now, as some of you know, this is something I too have worried about publicly since rather than politicizing the academic, something Jeff was very good at, it academicizes the political. And this is indeed something to be deeply concerned about. Thus, like the rest of the world we live in, critical educational research is caught up in contradictory relations of power. It should drive us to constantly remember and reconnect with the critical impulses and commitments that have led to the growth of critical analyses of an action in education. Yet this, this has also led to some serious conflicts within the critical traditions, and the plural is critical here, and is a strength, never a weakness. Yet this too can create real problems. Now I come from a political family, and this is important to this story. In my family, people didn't speak to each other because someone dared to say the name Trotsky when my family was Stalinoid. I had an uncle, an Uncle Joe, who lived one mile away from where I lived in Patterson, New Jersey, in the slums, and I never met him. He was my grandfather's brother because he was, God help us, someone who quoted Trotsky. <sighs> this creates real problems. It is often meant, never at universities, of course, that small differences get magnified into chasms so wide as to be unbridgeable. It becomes my Uncle Joe and my grandfather. And one of my objectives, and one that Jeff cares a good deal about as well, has always been to argue against such chasms. In this regard, the right has demonstrated something of considerable import in its formation of a hegemonic bloc that includes neoliberals, neoconservatives, authoritarian populist religious conservatives, and a particular fraction of the professional and managerial new middle class 
that believes so strongly that if it moves in classrooms, measure the damn thing in case it moves tomorrow. And here I borrow from Roger Dale and his concept of conservative modernization and trying to understand these kinds of things. So it has been willing to compromise among its varied tendencies in order to push education in particular directions and to use education as part of its larger strategy to radically transform society. Let us no longer ask whether education can transform society. The right already has documented that. It's a bad question. Let us no longer ask it. As I say elsewhere, and I'm not alone, I assume, if the right can do this, why can't the left? This means that there must be more openness, more willingness to form alliances across our differences than has often been the case. And Jeff himself provides the model of constantly acting, not trying to act, acting on this impulse. But this creates a dilemma for Jeff and for me and many others. Too much of what counts on the left in education is either overly economistic and formulaic, or as I noted earlier, simply rhetorical. Do not confuse what I'm saying here. Class is not discursive. It's real. This is capitalism. But capitalism is a racial form. It is a gendered form. It is a sexualized, sexualized form as well. We do damage to reality by not recognizing that. So I fear that too many arguments within critical sociology of education and most of the critical educational literature in general does not have the substantive, epistemological, political, and theoretical, and just as importantly, the very practical understanding of the foundational material that's supposedly being drawn upon. Critical issues involving cultural studies, excuse me, cultural struggles, the state, the need for more nuanced understandings of class formation and mobilizations, the very real complexity of the economy, the relative autonomy of gender, race, ability, the structuring of common sense, and the list goes on and on. All of these are too often treated as epiphenomenal or simply ignored. Sometimes it's as if postmodern and poststructural abstractions, while brilliant in many ways, have led to historical amnesia, to forgetting the real structures that organize this society. Yet perhaps even more problematic is the loss of memory of the crucial significance of the school as an arena of and for cultural and social mobilizations. I fear that this may be a performance of whiteness, a performance that says the institution can't be changed, there's nothing we can do. I know of no African-American person in the United States who has not been formed out of the battle over their children. We can no longer afford that. The same would be said about ability and many, many other things around gender and sexuality. So I fear again for these tendencies. And it's also, and perhaps even more important, deeply disrespectful since it marginalizes a good deal of practical work in schools and communities and substitutes a search for purity for the messy stuff of actually collectively and individually assisting in building curriculum, literacy practices, critically democratic modes of teaching, working with communities on issues of class, gender, race, sexuality, ability, and so much more. 
And it's also epistemologically suspect, since for Jeff and again for many, many others in the sociology of education and other areas, the best theory must be built in relationship to its object. The past and present of schools, curriculum, teachers, policies, communities, and so much more. And his connections to the realities of policy as a political and educational practice, as has been noted, is notable. It's exemplary in its commitment to help us understand these realities, a commitment that can be seen in so many of his writings and his actual lived work. But one thing is certain. All of these analyses of the limits and possibilities of current critical understandings and of education itself must be grounded in a thoroughly unromantic appraisal of the power of rightist assemblages and alliances in the current conjuncture. We must continue to ask, why are they successful? What can we learn from them? How can they be interrupted in the short and the long term? What do these interruptions look like? How can they be defended? And again, what can we learn from the lived experiences of real people saying, you can no longer do this to us? Now, there's much more I could say about these movements, but one of the major points I want to make here is that we face a difficult analytic and empirical problem, and we must stand on Jeff's shoulders in order to understand and act on this. We, of course, need to continue to engage in the detailed critical analyses of the realities and effects of neoliberal policies and practices. Yet while important, this is not enough. We face a much more complicated set of actors and movements, actors and movements that have formed a tense but still tactical alliance. Without recognizing the larger alliance of forces, we will be less nuanced than we should in understanding why rightist policies have indeed become dominant and less effective than we must be in challenging these policies in real schools and communities and nations throughout the world. Just as importantly, as I've tried to struggle with this even further in the latest book called The Struggle for Democracy in Education, the question also demands that one word that I've problematized before, the word we, be always deconstructed whenever we use it. Who the hell is the we? What group arrogates the center to themselves, including those groups in the academy? What gives us the right to call us the we? What group arrogates this, thereby seeing another group as the other? For the word we often symbolizes the manner in which ideological forces and assumptions work inside and outside of education. As I noted earlier, especially when employed by dominant groups in multiple institutions, we functions as a mechanism not only of inclusion but powerfully of exclusion as well. It's a verb that masquerades as a noun in a manner similar to the word minority or slave. No one is a minority in any society in the world. Someone has to make another person a minority. Someone or some group must minoritize another person and group. In the same way that no one can be known as a slave, someone or some group must enslave someone else. Ignoring this understanding cuts us off from seeing the ugly realities of our societies and their histories. 
Perhaps even more crucially, it also cuts us off from the immense, immensely valuable historical and current struggles against the gendered and sex classed and race processes of dehumanization. By severing the connections between nouns and verbs, it makes invisible the actions and actors that make dominance seem normal. It creates a vacant space that is all too often filled with dominant meanings and identities, even at places like the University of Wisconsin and the university that we, in which we sit here, no matter how much I love the place. This vacant space is legitimated by many things, but one of, most, one of the most powerful forces of legitimation is the way we even think about rationality and objectivity, a space that Jeff powerfully filled with his own valuable critiques. The stories of real people's lives, the realities of our connections to the ways in which the continuing process of and, for example, of, for example, racial dominance is built and maintained. All of these are hidden by the fiction of neutrality and of keeping ourselves above any substantive commitment to challenge such dominance. This is perhaps best seen in Charles Mill's brilliant and exceptional analysis in the racial contract of the ways in which the development of our belief in the rational individual at universities and elsewhere that lies at the heart of our usual conceptions of the public sphere is deeply connected to the construction of an other who is irrational, not fully worthy, black, brown, Asian, indigenous, woman, and the list goes on. Accepted conceptions of rationality require the creation of the irrational. It is no accident that the relational aspect of this guiding principle of being a rational person that we embody in our own lives and institutions, unfortunately has its roots in empire and the history of racial judgments. Now, these points may seem too abstract, but behind them is something that lies at the heart that is embodied as well in Jeff's work. A major role that we must play is to articulate both a vision and the reality of a fully engaged critical scholar and educator someone who refuses to accept an education that doesn't simultaneously challenge the unreflective we and also illuminates a path to a new politics of voice and recognition, not only in his research, but in the way one treats someone that we refuse to call the other. And the task then is to be lived out to embodied examples of critical research and critical practice and a more robust sense of socially informed educational research and action. And those two words should always be joined as it's actually lived out by real people, including committed educators and cultural workers, many again who, of whom are here. Is this enough? Of course not. Will speaking out and acting back at times be difficult and risky? Definitely. But non-action is a damn action. The difficult but ultimately fulfilling role of being a public intellectual. And let us remember that all people are intellectuals in their own lives. That difficult but fulfilling role demands more. Let me conclude with some final statements. Can you conclude without having final statements? Let me conclude with my introduction now. Okay. As many of you know from personal experiences, 
And as I also know from my own and many of my friends who are in this audience, our own struggles, and at times even arrests, as I noted earlier in many nations throughout the world, there are very real risks in engaging individually and collectively in taking our responsibilities as critical educators deeply seriously. People lose their jobs. They don't get tenure. They say, now you can no longer do this to me. And then it's done again. The empire still exists even when it comes and there can be little doubt, for instance, that the right will act back against those of us who engage in them. Yes, there will be very real risks in doing these things. But let me be honest, if we are not willing to take these risks, how can we do critical work criticizing others for not doing it? Thus, it seems to me something that we all know. We must continue to act. And the right in my own nation and unfortunately here and so many places in the world will respond, I would be disappointed if they didn't. The right will be forced to respond, and we should actually take this as a thank you note, for it means that they realize that our actions and the actions of our allies can lead to the increased possibility of major gains. It reminds us that there have been victories. Why would the right be so angry at institutions where we work and live if there hadn't been victories? Let us take our enemies, you'll forgive that binary for a minute, let us take them seriously. That they realize that they may be forced to retreat on crucial issues. But if we're to continue to successfully challenge the right in education and so much else, in the paid and unpaid workplaces, in the media, in the government, everywhere, certain things must continue to be done. Let me turn to some critical educators about this. Raymond Williams reminds us that creating and defending a fully participatory critical democracy requires providing the conditions that make it possible for all people to actually fully participate. And it's exactly this more full participation, exactly this one, and what it means in all its contradictions that is one of the main political, ethical, and educational foundations of a truly critical education. Yet honestly, looking around us in all too many nations, we see that these conditions are increasingly difficult to build and sustain. We need to remember that the country where I live, for instance, is a nation built on enslavement, stolen land, the unpaid labor of women, the sacrifices of millions of people who dream of a better life for themselves and their children, and need I say it by those others called immigrants. And similar recognitions are crucial around the history of empire, enslavement, exploitation, and all of these dynamics. And you'll forgive me if I remind myself and others in this room that this is even more essential to the nation where we're currently sitting, in this room. The empire has come home. It never was gone. At the same time that there is much to be proud of in attempting to keep the vast river of democracy on course, the economic conditions experienced by so many people, the racist rates of incarceration, the defunding of absolutely necessary health care centers for poor women, and on, uh, the, the attacks on paid and unpaid labor, the defunding of education at all levels, 
the ideological attacks on curriculum and teachers, the massive amounts of money spent on the war machine, and the list goes on and on. All of this is real and enormously damaging. And the word we can describe this is simply a national disgrace. So there's much to do in many places where it needs to be done. The task seems so big, this can be disheartening and unfortunately even paralyzing. But we must start somewhere. We need to actively resist the all too widespread assumption that education is not powerful as a transformative agent. That it can only change after society is transformed, something out there. Educational institutions and the people who work in them are key parts of society. Even if we believe a reductive form that we must change labor processes to change the world, we are workers in education. This is the economy. Sitting here is part of that economy. Chantal Mouffe makes a key point when she states that we first must need to restore democracy so we can then radicalize it. And the act of restoring democracy is where we can start in education. And our research can play a role in this. Thus, despite what we know about the forces of dominance that we face and about the contradictions and tensions that are visible all around us, people here and elsewhere following Jeff, keeping the river alive, we continue the struggle for thick democracy inside and outside of institutions of education that seems so very important to the project of social empowerment to us and so many millions of people in the world. One of the best statements of the importance of such continued work and commitment is made by my friend and colleague, Eric Olin Wright. I quote from Eric, the best we can do then is to treat the struggle to move forward on the pathways of social empowerment as an experimental process in which we test and retest the limits of possibility and try as best we can to create new institutions to defend the others as well, which will expand these limits themselves. In doing so, we not only envision real utopias, but contribute to making utopias real. And Wright reminds us that social institutions can be designed, are being designed, that eliminate forms of oppression that thwart human aspirations of living, fulfilling, and meaningful lives. Now, my own positions, and that of so many other committed people here and elsewhere, the positions that have embodied Jeff's work for more than five decades can perhaps be characterized as optimism with no illusions whatsoever. Thus, we can be and frequently are disappointed in the results of the hard work of building an emancipatory politics in and through education. But we must actively refuse to be disillusioned. Raymond Williams again provides wise words. As he says, we must speak for hope as long as it doesn't suppress the danger. As he goes on to say, it is only in the shared belief and insistence that, are, that there are practical alternatives that the balance of forces and chances begin to alter. Once the inevitabilities are challenged, we can begin gathering our resources for a journey of hope. If there are no easy answers, there are still available, discoverable, hard answers that people are raising now. 
And it's to these that we can now learn to make and share. And this has been from the beginning the sense and impulse of the long revolution. Jeff is a participant and teacher of the long revolution. And the struggle for critical democracy and is a key part in challenging these inevitabilities. And perhaps the best way to honor our friend, our colleague, Jeff Witte, is not simply to be nice to Jeff, though he deserves it. It's to continue to engage in the struggle. Thank you, Jeff. Wow, that was an absolute tour de force, wasn't it? And I'm sure that uh, many of you want to respond and you'll get the chance, of course, over a drink later. Um, I'm personally very glad that we're going to have a Foucauldian among the respondents now. Um, the uniting theme next in our responses is um, the, the, both uh, Louise and Stephen are successors, of course, of Jeff Whitty as Karl Mannheim Chair, and we're inviting both of them to respond to Michael's lecture. Um, so if I can invite them to both come, on to, come up to the table now. Both. Uh, Louise Archer joined the IOE in 2017 as the Karl Mannheim Professor of Sociology of Education. Previously, Louise was Professor of Sociology of Education at King's College London, where she was also the Director of the Centre for Research in Education in Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics. Her work encompasses research on minority ethnic pupils, urban young people and schooling, widening participation, and inequalities in science participation. And Stephen Ball is Distinguished Service Professor at the IOE, prior to which he held the IOE's Karl Mannheim Chair of Sociology of Education from 2001 to 2015. Stephen's main areas of academic interest are in sociologically informed education policy analysis, especially concerning the roles of the state and the market in education and social inequalities in education. Most recently, his work has addressed changing modes of governance in education, as well as offering a compre comprehensive application of the work of Michael Foucault to education in his recent book, Foucault as Education. Um, so without further ado, and if possible, st sticking strictly to time, um, I believe Stephen's going to go first. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Betty. I, I talked to Michael over lunch about the nature of my response, um, and it's fairly oblique in many ways. I'm going to respond in a different way through a different medium um, to Michael uh, in one of our many conversations. But Michael's paper and presentation made me think about how what counts as social justice and critical social research in education has changed over time. And it makes me think also about the ways in which what we called the sociology of education at the point that I and Jeff became part of it bears in many ways little resemblance to the rather ill-defined and unwieldy and unstable social relations that we refer to now as the sociology of education. 
And where Michael rightly focuses on the here and now and how sociology education engages with critical studies, studies uh, struggles for social justice, forgive me if I, I look back at these earlier periods when the idea of social justice and critical research was, was somewhat different. I first encountered Jeff, um, although I'm not sure we actually spoke, uh, at a Sociology of Education conference in 1974, organised by the Open University at the aptly named Balls Park College, uh, which is now part of the University of Hertfordshire. And I think, I'm almost sure that Jeff, um, we were talking about this the other day, presented a paper there based on his chapter that uh, Michael and Sharon have already referred to, Sociology and the Problem of Radical Educational Change, in which he coined the term uh, naive possibilitarianism and was later published in a collection of papers edited by John Eyre. And the conference itself was, was set at the intersection of significant public struggles about what was to count as valid objects of concern in the sociology of education. And these struggles were, were practical and methodological and very, very theoretical and related directly to what it is that needed to be criticised, what needed to be analysed and what needed to be changed. And there were three focal points of, of these struggles, three arenas of, of conflict. And, and the first of these was the that this was set in the period of ferment around what was then being called the new sociology of education, which had been articulated most clearly in Michael Young's edited book, Knowledge and Control. And this move, the new sociology of education, relocated inequality in the message systems of schooling, as Basil Bernstein called them, curriculum, pedagogy and assessment and in the grouping and labelling of students in relation to unexamined notions of ability, which was uh, explored in pioneering work by people like Colin Lacey, David Hargreaves and Audrey Lambert. And this was the direction through which I entered these debates. And this new sociology education took us inside the black box of the school and deconstructed the neutrality of schooling. It was no longer a matter of how much schooling you got, but how much of what schooling you got. The nature of what they encountered in schools, as Jeff put it in a, uh, a recent paper, 2012 paper. Knowledge, teaching and assessment were no longer uh, neutral processes, but mechanisms of division and exclusion. And Jeff's particular focus in relation to this, as has already been mentioned, was on what counts as school knowledge. And as Michael notes and others noted, this was articulated most fully in his 1986 book, Sociology uh, and School Knowledge, and then followed up with collaborations, the two books with Michael Young. And in some ways, the new sociology of education was set over and against what I guess is the old sociology education, or the, the LSE school of education, uh, represented by people, among others, like A.H. Holsey, Jean Flood, Don Swift, Maurice Craft. And these approaches sought the sources of inequality in different ways in the home rather than in the school itself. Although this position was also bifurcated, of course, at this time, we hadn't learned to be suspicious of binaries. We still use them innocently. 
Um, it was bifurcated between an emphasis on material conditions of the home, poverty, as against family attitudes and aspirations. And we can still see those things as relevant today. The second focus of disputation was within the new sociology of education. It was a division and confrontation between process and structure, between neo-Marxism and symbolic interactionism, both represented in important and key courses at the Open University and their key readers. So on the one side, there's people like Peter Woods and Martin Hammersley, and they were editors of The Process of Schooling, a sociological reader, over and against Jeff Esland and Ben Cozen, who organised and ran the uh, course uh, ED302, uh, School and Society, and edited The School and Society, a sociological reader, which was published in 1971, and by 1980 had gone through 23 different editions. In addition to this, the other entry from the Open University into this debate was Schooling and Capitalism, a sociological reader, edited by Roger Dale, by Madeleine MacDonald, and uh, by Jeff Asland. And of course, this led to the attacks um, by Julius Gould on the Open University for Marxist bias. The third focus were divisions within the Marxist camp. And what I remember most vividly about the Balls Park Conference were the vociferous and animated debates, or more realistically stand-up arguments where people would shout at one another, between the Althusserians and the Palancians. People shouted and gesticulated as they argued over the issue of the determination in the last instance, or the usefulness of the concepts of repressive and ideological state apparatuses. People don't do that anymore. <laughs> Which is a shame. <laughs> the focus of all this disputation was almost exclusively focused on issues of social class, and other injustices had little or no voice at this time. Although gender was very quickly established in the school processes camp through the work of people like Lynn Davis, Carolyn Llewellyn, Madeleine Arno and Mickey David, among others. Altogether, this was a relatively small but fruitfully divided community, and such moments of public conflict, as I described, were common, as common as they are unknown today. And I miss the cut and thrust of all this. And of course, within all this, Jeff was a formidable interlocutor. And what was missing, though, from these problematizations of education was policy itself. Policy was, for some, a space to be captured, but was not an object of study in its own right. The LSE position was rooted in a kind of Fabian evidence-based relation to policy, and there were moments at which their research did have a relation to policy, but not very often. But in 1988, all that changed. Over the next 10 years, policy became established as one of the primary focuses of the sociology of education. And Jenny Odsger's work was important, and her notion of policy sociology provided a scripture for the sort of work that people like myself and Jeff was doing. And at this time, Jeff was involved in two massively important studies, choice and devolution, and the evaluation of the assisted places scheme which established a policy trajectory model of analysis that sought to trace policies from their inception to their practice. And this 
APS study then led on to uh, the, the uh, education in the middle class study done with uh, Sally Power. And these various studies, these key studies involve working with people like Tony Edwards, who I can see at the back, John Phipps, who is over here, David Halpin and Sally Powers. These were seminal studies, and I recently reread Choice and Devolution and was struck by how much it was anticipating the direction of policy, the direction policy took over the next 20 years. And we were talking, I was talking about this with Jeff over breakfast a couple of weeks ago. In all of this, I was meeting with Jeff regularly and we were able to learn, I was able to learn from his conversation, I'm not sure whether he learned anything from mine, um, and I was learning from his criticisms and insights. And I still remember the heightened sense of trepidation I had when I was preparing for my 1991 uh, professorial lecture at, at King's, when I saw uh, Jeff and Tony Edwards come in and shuffle into the middle of the, 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 the chairs, sitting front and centre in my direct eye line. And I had, in fact, followed Jeff uh, uh, to King's as tutor for the MA in Urban Education. I inherited his room. Um, and what turned out to be dozens of black bags worth of committee papers, which he'd left behind. He appeared never to have thrown away a single committee paper. And Tony and I, from the University of La Trobe, and I spent several days clearing the room and filling uh, uh, black bags with these papers. It was a rather odd-shaped room. And I later learned it was odd-shaped because it had actually been converted from a toilet. Um, and I was to follow Jeff again in 2001 when I succeeded him as Karl Mannheim Professor at the Institute of Education, as he had succeeded Basil Bernstein. And once again, I inherited his room, although this time it's a much bigger one, a much nicer one in Gordon Square, which now houses a team of six researchers. Jeff, of course, became my director and was unstintingly uh, supportive of me and my work uh, during my time at the Institute of Education. In all of this, Jeff has been a key formative influence in what we understand by the sociology of education and what we understand more closely defined as policy sociology. But now, for me, it seems most important that he is, he is my friend. Thank you. Louise Archer. Thank you. I think the best gift I'd like to give to Jeff and to the audience now is that I'm going to try and keep this short. There's a lot I could say on many of the points, but I'm jettisoning them. So I want to, to thank Jeff for all his wonderful work and to Michael for his brilliant, critical and inspiring as ever uh, talk. I was asked to formulate some thoughts about looking forward. Where do we think the sociology of education might be going? What can we learn from and move forward with? And I want to make five points. So the first is that I find the emphasis in Jeff's work, and as, as Michael said in his talk, on keeping hold of structures really helpful and really crucial, not least as we seem to currently experience and feel the weight of them so keenly. The second point is I, th I really find the calls for both critique and the struggle for hopeful action is essential to a sociology of education that's committed to social justice. 
I think it's very striking that Jeff's critique around the What Works agenda is still so pertinent today. We need this so much for an agenda that decontextualises, compartmentalises knowledge, eschews complexity, and constrains the possibilities and reproduces the status quo. I think we need praxis. We need conceptually grounded reflection and dialogue for action. And we need the hope and the inspiration that's offered by Jeff's work. It moves us beyond just critique. And I think it's this form of constructive critique that will provide us with the key tools for prizing open the cracks in hegemony, and then not just leaving them there, but finding ways to move forward. My third point is that I find Michael's call for us to take risks as welcome, if scary. But this is another key challenge for the sociology of education. As Beck reminds us, risks adhere inversely to the social structure. So those who are experiencing the greatest uh, troubles are experiencing the greatest amount of risk as well. So in this respect, I think it's incumbent on us, of those of us with more privilege, and I think uh, being a sociology of education academic is a privilege, should shoulder more risks in this endeavour. Michael raises the, very powerfully the pertinent point around uh, the issues of representation and the politics of the we that includes and excludes and normalises domination. Feminist transversal politics is one way of trying to move beyond an identity-based politics towards a looser coalition uh, around not what, who we are, but what we want to achieve. But this, again, is not without complication. I like to imagine that perhaps Theresa May reflects on, surely she was trying to enact a feminist transversal politics in her dubious choices of coalition for maintaining power. But it signals that this is an ongoing challenge that we haven't yet solved, how we can be more polyvocal and inclusive. <laughs> the fifth and final challenge that I want to highlight is to flag that slippery issue of privilege. I like the call for hopeful action. I believe equitable change is possible, albeit in small measures. But we have to remember that this doing social justice research is part of a zero-sum game. We can't have gains in equity and equality without some giving up of privilege. It's no simple win-win, despite how we may see it framed in policy documents. And we need to remember that privilege is very adept and very slippery at reproducing itself and negotiating new ways to maintain advantage. So I want to end with a sentiment and a metaphor to try and sum up my feelings about the importance of Jeff's work and what it means for us going forward. I started off by thinking maybe I'll use the metaphor of it's a bedrock or a foundation, but even a little bit of sociological imagination applied to that says it's, it's really it's lacking in agency. It's just too fixed as a metaphor. So then I thought, what about a springboard? It's more dynamic, so the idea that your work propels us forward, it lifts us up, sends us forward, we can see further, do more things with it. But having watched the Olympics, spring balls are quite unidirectional. It wasn't working. So I decided in the end to settle on a more appropriate metaphor with appropriate gravitas. So I'd like to go with the metaphor of the trampoline. <laughs> Leaving aside the stretchy fabric and the metal springs, which I couldn't work into the metaphor, a trampoline provides a flexible and responsive strong base for multiple launchings. It produces complex trajectories and interactions. For those of us with children, it produces a disruptive presence. And speaking as a middle-aged woman who's had twins, it involves that certain amount of risk that Michael was perhaps talking about in a different respect and is very much differentially experienced. So leaving aside issues of embodiment and the perils of middle-aged trampolining, 
As the online dictionary helpfully reminded me earlier, the trampoline is both a launch point and a landing area. And in this respect, I feel that Jeff's work is the very epitome of a critical sociology of education. Well, thank you, everyone. That's, I think, given due recognition to the incredible influence and impact of Jeff's work um, on all of our work, actually, but across the um, subfield of the sociology of education. Now, one of my first important jobs on arrival as director at the IOE was participating in the conferment of Jeff's UCL Honorary Fellowship. Uh, conferred with our Provost Michael Arthur at our awards ceremonies in 2016. Many of you will know that in recent years, Jeff has been closely involved in supporting development at the University of Newcastle, Australia, and I'm delighted to say that we're facilitating this evening their conferment of an honour for Jeff. Jenny Gore, Professor of, at the University of Newcastle, New South Wales, is presenting the honour on behalf of the University of Newcastle's Vice-Chancellor. From 2012 to 18, Jeff was Global Innovation Chair and Director of the Centre for Excellence for Equity in Higher Education at Newcastle. And Jenny herself is a research leader in teaching and teacher education internationally, a field that Jeff has engaged with throughout his career, particularly in terms of teacher education, professional standards, and teacher professionalism. So I'll hand you over to Jen. Jen. Thanks, Becky. Um, the University of Newcastle's council actually made the decision to confer this honour upon Jeff in February this year, and the Vice-Chancellor's been looking for an occasion at which it might be presented to him in person. We're very grateful um, that Becky and the IOE have allowed this small intrusion into your important ceremony today, uh, but it seems fitting um, to honour his work at Newcastle, uh, some of his most recent work. And I think it's a really wonderful opportunity to be able to confer this honour in front of his family and so many of his friends and colleagues. And if I might just say one very personal thing before uh, reading the citation, um, and that is that Jeff has become such a wonderful and generous mentor to so many of us in Newcastle and a very dear friend, and we're very grateful uh, for all that you've done in Newcastle. So to the, the Vice-Chancellor's citation, and I'm actually, you'll be pleased to hear, um, going to leave out one whole page um, <laughs> of details about his career because I think we've heard uh, so many wonderful accounts of that already and I know we're running short for time, uh, but I must also do honour to her words. She says, I have great pleasure in presenting to you Professor Geoffrey James Whitty, Commander of the British Empire, for admission to the degree of Doctor of Education Honoris Causa. Professor Whitty is an internationally renowned expert in the field of education. Spanning 50 years of research, scholarship and practice, he's made a significant and profound contribution to his field by improving quality and access to education for communities across the globe. Through its Global Innovation Chair Initiative, world-leading academics and researchers are invited to work with the University of Newcastle to build its global research profile and partnerships. Professor, Professor Whitty was appointed the Global Innovation Chair for Equity in Higher Education in 2014. Access and equity in higher education has always been part of the university's vision 
and our mission is to continue to build our comprehensive expertise in the area and share our unique knowledge with the world. The appointment of a world-class leader in the field of equity and access in higher education was pivotal to realising this ambition. Through his vision, insight and global networks, Professor Wiki has established the University of Newcastle Centre of Excellence for Equity in Higher Education as a world leader in the field. In his role as Global Innovation Chair, he's brought research and practice together to generate new approaches and thinking in this dynamic field. His knowledge of policy in equity in higher education across the globe is unparalleled, and this insight has had a profound impact on the work of the centre and its contribution to global dialogue. At the same time, he's generously shared his expertise and knowledge mentoring many colleagues across the university and helping to secure funding to continue research and practice. Professor Witte has taken the important work of the university in equity in higher education across his global networks in the United Kingdom, the United States and China. As an ambassador, he's positioned the centre and the university leadership in the field, which in turn has delivered collaborations with world-class scholars and maximised the reach and impact of its work. Professor Witte is an outstanding practitioner, scholar and researcher who shares this university's commitment to providing access to a world-class education for everyone with ability and determination. The university and its Centre of Excellence for Equity in Higher Education are most fortunate to have had the benefit of his expertise, leadership and vision. It is with very great pleasure that I present to you Professor Geoffrey James Witte, CBE, for the admission for admission to the degree of Doctor of Education Honoris Causa. And now for the hooding. There's really no more for me to do except two small things. One is to welcome you all to join us at the reception afterwards, to share a drink, alcoholic or otherwise, um, and to, to talk about the conversations that have gone on today. Um, and secondly, of course, to give thanks. Uh, thanks so much to the speakers for their brilliantly stimulating uh, inputs tonight. To you, the audience, for coming in such numbers and with such warmth to listen. And of course, I, I know that you will, you're here to join with me in, giving, in sharing our deep gratitude to Jeff for the enormous input and impact that you've had on the IOE, on education broadly, and particularly on the sociology of education. Thank you, Jeff.
And can I just, in a few words, say thank you so much for what's happened this evening, the wonderful words, the wonderful uh, hospitality that uh, uh, the IOE has, uh, has shown in uh, putting on this occasion. Uh, I never expected anything like this. Uh, and uh, I hope this is not my final goodbye to you, but it's one I will certainly uh, hold in my memory uh, for forever. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. <laughs>